Well, this morning we continue on in our series for the summer called Because You Say So I Will, and it's born out of the moment that is recorded in Luke's Gospel in Luke chapter 5. This is a moment where Peter, this professional fisherman, is doing his thing, and he's been doing it all night long, and he has finished up kind of with no success, and Jesus, who is on the beach teaching another group of people, recognizes Peter, and he asks him or tells him to go out into the water and let down your nets. And this moment, um, when we read it quickly, we sometimes miss the tension-filled spaces that are beautiful and are intended to draw the reader into human moments in life that we are ourselves, the reader of the Scriptures, might find ourselves in those same spaces. This moment is when Peter responds and he's like, Master, and again, we've been saying this for several weeks now, this is not Peter acknowledging Jesus yet as his master, but rather just a simple sign of respect because he at least can see that he is a rabbi of sorts. And he says, Master, um, we've been working hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. And that's, this is a space where Peter the professional is being confronted with a word of instruction from a stranger, more or less, and yet Peter responds and follows through and does what Jesus asks him to do. Peter, in real time, demonstrates to you and I what it means to submit to Jesus. Submission is this space of like, I might not necessarily want to do this. I might think it's foolish to do this, but I will submit myself to what you're asking me to do. Peter demonstrates this huge theological theme of submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Or in a very simple way, Peter is by faith putting Jesus' words of instruction into practice. Jesus, on the other side, is demonstrating to us, and we sometimes forget this, Jesus is demonstrating what grace looks like. Jesus doesn't have to say or do anything of what's, what's about to happen. Peter hasn't lived a good life, so Jesus owes him this. Jesus, simply out of love and grace towards Peter, says, Go out into the water. I have something to show you. Not because you're good, not because you've earned anything, but because, but because I am who I am. This moment in the Scriptures in Luke 5 captures this incredible tension of grace and faith and action. And I love these moments, and they're all through the Scriptures. They are all through your regular daily life in the 21st century. Which is why I love the Scriptures, because some of us whether we're here in the room or listening online, we, we view the Scriptures as this like archaic text that was written sometime for some people somewhere, but it doesn't really relate to me, or it's not relevant for my daily life, and, and we really miss the mark if that's our position or our perspective of the Scriptures themselves. Today, if not, never before, I suspect that you'll be confronted with the relevancy of Scripture and I hope that you will find yourself in a moment of, of like, oh, like you're asking me to do this. It's not exactly what I have been told. It's not exactly what the experts would say. It's not exactly my own idea or my own upbringing. But that you would come to this place of like tension-filled, grace-filled, where Jesus is asking us to do something a particular way. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about marriage. And it's my hope that you would come to a beautifully filled moment, filled with tension, and that you would be like Peter, where our response is, because you say so, I, I will. 
before we jump into this, would you, would you pray with me? Our gracious and heavenly Father, we are so grateful for these moments that are all through the scriptures where you come alongside someone and you ask them to do something. And we see this moment of like, fine, I, I'll do this. I don't quite get why you're asking me to do this. I don't quite understand it. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but, but I will do this. And God, as we kind of talk through kind of marriage, that our hearts would be in that same posture, posture of like, I'm not quite sure if this makes sense in our time and place. I'm not quite sure if this lines up with what I was taught from my parents or what I heard online or the latest podcast, but that we might have that same space of like, because you are asking me, I will, I will do this. In your name we pray, amen. From a cultural standpoint, marriage is a fascinating conversation as every other conversation that we've been having is. And before we kind of get into the structural statements that the scriptures would speak to, I want to highlight some of the kind of cultural narratives that we find ourselves in. For some, marriage is a, a business relationship. If you've watched uh, any of kind of like the Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, there's a few characters on there that describe marriage in a business relationship, that it's a transactional kind of 50-50 split, bills, chores, it's very contractual, where a spouse might even borrow money from a spouse because the spouse kind of lost their employment and they're in a kind of a downtime, so to speak, and it's very business-oriented. For others, marriage is this glorified roommates that get to have sex with one another. Interesting article in the New York Times where it's called, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage. The article goes on to say, in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership. And they want partners who will make their lives more interesting, who help them attain their own personal valued goals. It goes on a little further to say, marriage used to be a public institution for common good, and now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. Marriage used to be about us, and now it's about me. One of the dominant cultural narratives around marriage is that I will marry someone if that someone makes my life more interesting, or that person is gifted in a unique way that allows me to reach my goals. John Witt, a professor at University of Atlanta, writes, marriage has been redefined as finding emotional and sexual fulfillment and or self-actualization. It's about what the other can do for me, how they can benefit from that other person's existence, how that person can help me achieve my goals, and how I can keep my life interesting. This is very much how many people approach marriage in our time and place. It's what we think is necessary to have a successful marriage. Marriage really is an interesting conversation. And now more than ever, we live in a world that's very much filled with marital experts and marital advice and to have a successful marriage, it's this, it's this. And there's kind of all over the map of perspectives and ideas. And it's like, well, this giant smorgasbord that we can pick from and apply that for a bit and if that doesn't go so well, we'll go over here and try this for a little bit and on and on the options and ideas go. My, my question to you this morning or the question to us in the room and online, what shapes us as it relates to our married lives? 
do we know what Jesus says on the matter? And I know some of you are like, well, I'm not married. Well, if, if that's a hope of yours, listen closely. If you're in a marriage, this might sting a little bit as we work our way through these particular themes. Have you ever been confronted with what Jesus says on the matter? Are you aware that it's very countercultural what he says about marriage? Would you be surprised to discover that it's very, very much the opposite of what a lot of the cultural experts would say on this particular relationships? Have you ever been confronted like Peter, where there's this guy on the beach says, Go out into the deep water and let down your nets? And Peter's like, You're not even a fisherman. Why would I ever listen to advice from you? Well, on marriage, this might be your moment. And in this conversation, there's really two parts, since the first one is the easiest one. And yet, in, in what's easy is not overly easy, and you'll kind of get a sense of that as we work our way through. Here are some structural statements that the Scriptures have, that God has, on the conversation of marriage. And we go right back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, where there's very much a language of one man, one woman, who will become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, 20 to 24. For Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And it's here where God creates Eve. I didn't have enough space to put it all on one slide. And he brought her to the man, Adam. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The two shall be called, uh, sorry, um, she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of the man. This is, sorry, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the, they become one flesh. This is Genesis chapter 2, 2024, and you're like, that's Old Testament. That's a long time ago. Surely we have modernized. Surely we have evolved away from such a narrow perspective of what marriage is from God's perspective. Well, let's fast forward, let's say 3,000 years, to Jesus himself. This is in Matthew 19. And in this moment, Jesus is being tricked by religious leaders. They're trying to trap him in marriage dialogue. Jesus responds. He doesn't even acknowledge their questions. They're trying to trick him up kind of spirit. He just simply says, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and they will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's curious, Jesus here, thousands of years after the original design given in Genesis chapter 2, Jesus reaffirms this design. And he's like, well, why would he do that? Well, this is his design. Like, when we read Genesis 2, we have to understand clearly that Jesus is a part of and the creator of the very creation of God, the very blueprints for how the world is to function. So when Jesus affirms this design in Matthew 19, he is simply saying, my idea from the beginning was pretty good. And it's not going to change based on the trickery questions that you're putting before me. I want to address something here quickly. I know that we live in a world where this framework of marriage, this description of marriage, 
seems very, very, very narrow. But here, here's something I, I need you to know. The idea of marriage being one man, one woman, together forever, this has always been narrow. This is not a new thing. This has always been narrow. The rewriting of what marriage is in the last 50 years, this is not new. It's just not new. It's always been the case. If you get into history at all, and we'll start with ancient biblical history. How many wives did Abraham have? Three. Let that sink in. For, like The father of faith begins the story with three wives. David. How many wives did David have? Eight. Solomon. How many wives did Solomon have? Hundreds. How many wives did the guy have that Paul's talking to when he says, you can only have one wife? It gets funny when I sit with people who've been around church language and culture for a long time. They're like, oh, we're after a biblical portrait of marriage. I'm like, well, which one? Which biblical marriage do you want to look at? Because there's all kinds of biblical portraits of marriage that come from the scriptures that would completely fall outside of the design that God has outlined in his word. I know that from the very beginning, God, through the text of scripture, has laid down this structural statement of one man, one woman, together forever. And every time you see marriage expressed outside of I know, a very narrow perspective. It always leads to frustration for those who were involved in it. It's curious, when you get into the story of Abraham, a lot of his frustration was linked to all the interpersonal dynamics that happened between he and his other wives. David, the train wreck of his life is often linked to the other wives that he has brought in in awful, gross ways. Solomon, like, what are you doing? You have a hundred wives. And all of the frustration towards the tale of his life is linked to all that comes in this particular practice. Historically speaking, same-sex marriages, unions, they were quite commonplace in the Roman Empire. So what's happening now, this is not new. This is just another chapter of the same historical story that's been going on for a long, long time. Modern-day open marriages or polyamory marriages, every documentary, every TV show, every series on TLC that works hard to redraw what a marriage ought to or could look like in a very sophisticated modern society. What I love about those shows when I watch them is that when you watch the interpersonal relationships of those involved in these relationships, it's not a surprise to me that there's someone struggling with conversations of jealousy. It's not a surprise to me that someone's struggling with anxiety or fear or worry or rage and anger that build up over years and years and years. Churchgoer, we sometimes need to relax when we see, quote-unquote, marriage being attacked because this has always been attacked. Like, it's not a new thing. This description from Scripture is very narrow. It's always been narrow. It doesn't matter where you slice into human history, when someone reads what God's design was for marriage, it's like, wow, that's completely outside 
of the normal cultural practices. It's completely outside of those cultural practices, regardless of where you kind of slice into it. Which is ironic, and this is what I love about our culture. There's an arrogance about, about our time and place in history where we think that we're breaking new ground, that we're moving forward, that we're such sophisticated, evolved species. And I'm like, no, this has been around a long time. These conversations, these ideas, these philosophies, these approaches, these have been around a long time. Nothing's new under the sun. It just goes quiet for a bit, and then it reemerges a little bit later on. Like, there's no original thought around anything that's unfolding in our world right now. Because this definition of marriage has always been incredibly narrow, incredibly strict, as it were. We need to know that Jesus' definition of marriage was as every bit countercultural then as it is now. So again, as per Jesus himself in Matthew 19, 4-6, he replied that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and the two will be united to his wife. The two become one flesh, so they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, this is the part two. This is part one, the very structural, narrow perspective from God's view on marriage. But it gets even more unique when you get into the interpersonal relationships of what it looks like inside, quote-unquote, what is already a very narrow perspective of marriage. The big concept that Jesus puts forward inside the one-on-one together forever structure is this giant conversation of mutual love and submission towards one to another in the context of the one and one. In Ephesians chapter 5, they're not on the screen, but in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 40, Hebrews 13, 4, 1 Peter 4, 8, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 16, Colossians 3, and you could pick a host of other passages. All of these passages speak to marriage, speak to the interpersonal dynamics that unfold between a husband and a wife. Sometimes these instructions are very pointed and specific. You'll find phrases like, husbands, do you not know that your body is not your own, it belongs to your wife? You'll find phrases that says, wives, do you not know that your body is not your own? It belongs to your husband. Submit to your husbands. Out of love for Christ, submit to one another. Very specific language that Jesus, Paul, other biblical writers speak to about what it looks like inside this one man, one woman together forever. Sometimes these passages would be very general in how they speak to marriage. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on that passage goes. Other ones, it would say, don't consider yourself better than others. Put others' needs before your own. Some of you might be saying a couple things when we work through this. What about the wives submitting to the husbands' passages? First, that's not the breaking news story of Paul's letters. That's not new information. In the letters that Paul writes, culturally speaking, that's already there. That's already there. The breaking news story is how the husband is addressed. And it continues to be ironic. Because whenever we get into study, it's like, 
We will highlight wives submit to your husbands and glaze over the very pointed passages given towards husbands. Things like, love your wife like Christ loves the church. Oh, and by the way, you can only have one of them. Oh, and by the way, you can't divorce her quickly as you do in your day and time. Oh, and your body, husbands, for the first time in your life, I'm telling you that your body is not your own. It belongs to her. Oh, and you can't treat her like property. Like, all of the instructions towards husbands would be what is against the grain of their culture. This is where the rub is. That there is someone telling the guy, you're not free to do whatever you want anymore. You can't go have multiple wives. You can't just get rid of her through the legal practice of divorce. Your body belongs to her. And on and on it goes. Now having said that, I love when we take deep dives into theological conversations around the passages that do highlight wives submit to your husbands. And when you dive into those conversations, number one, you have to you have to handle that phrase with the same excitement or passion as you do the ones regarding husbands. And it requires three things to do this. Number one, it requires a consistency and a commitment to the text of Scripture, not a theological framework that you grew up in. This was my story. I grew up in a theological framework and was unaware of what the whole of the scriptures would say on the matter. And I am more committed to the text of scripture than I am a framework thought of of someone, somewhere, sometime. Number two, it requires an understanding of, these are, these are I know, like boring theological ideas, but exegesis versus eisegesis, what I will read out of the text versus what I will read into the text. Most of us, we are wonderful to read into the text. Oh, this must be what it's saying. And third, the Scriptures can never mean something now that it never meant in that time and place. The Scriptures can never mean something now what it never meant in that time and place. And however you handle the husband's-wives dialogue to the text of Scripture, you must handle everything else that appears in those passages the same way. So right alongside these passages around husbands' wives, you'll find conversations around long hair and jewelry and makeup, slaves and masters. The other thing I would address just quickly before we keep going Many of the passages that I highlighted, you would be right to say, well, they're not exclusively about marriage. Like Corinthians 13, that's not really about marriage. That's about the church and how the church functions together as a body of believers. When we read anything in the scriptures, ultimately it would boil down to how my life is to be lived in response to who Jesus is. When I read Paul or Peter or James or another author in the New Testament, As a follower of Christ, guess who the primary person is that I apply the language of 
Don't consider yourself better than others. Who is the primary person in my life that I apply? Carry someone else's burdens. Who do I apply? The lift someone above yourself. That's my wife. The primary person that I'm to practice all of the, quote-unquote, how I live my life for the glory of God, it is to be laid down over my wife, Amy. First and foremost. Second, my children. Third, you. Like, when we see all of the text of Scripture, it's like, oh, that verse isn't about marriage. I only apply that to my friends. What? No, I start here in the most closest relationship that God has blessed me with. And from there it goes out. To have a marriage that reflects the because you say so I will is to simply say is, is a marriage where I am serving the other one. Where I exist to enhance their life. Where I am putting their interests over my own. Where I will sacrificially serve them. And this should not surprise us that this is the design coming out of Scripture because this is, in fact, the very way Christ lived his life, lived his life for the world, for his people. Jesus gave himself up for them. While you were a sinner, Christ died for us. I have come to lay down. No one's taking my life from me. I am willingly laying it down so that other people might know and walk with me in a life-giving relationship. Jesus himself, through his life, God himself, through the person of Jesus Christ says, this is what our lives are to look like as people. And it gets played out. That gospel narrative gets played out in my marriage first. And some I know, as they hear God's design for marriage and how He serves someone else in this very narrow definition, some would say, well, God's design is rather restrictive, that it's oppressive, that it might suck the life out of a human. But ironically, it's the opposite. God's design for marriage brings a flourishing to the human being that is so pronounced that it's actually measurable in the social sciences. Professor Wright, a sociologist at the University of Connecticut, in a major study a few years back, he says, um, those who attend church regularly and are actively pursuing Jesus, 38% less likely to end in divorce that particular marriage. Another professor at the University of Denver concludes that couples with a vibrant faith have a higher level of the qualities needed to avoid marital disaster. He writes, whether young or old, male or, male or female, low income or those who are, sorry, or not, those who have said they are more religious reported higher average levels of commitment to their partners, higher levels of marital satisfaction, less thinking and talking about divorce, and lower levels of negative interaction. These patterns held true when controlling for such variable, important variables such as income, education, and age at first marriage. To go even further, there is study upon study upon study that highlights that individuals who are married for the long haul, benefits of greater financial, financial security, better overall physical health, greater life expectancy, a satisfying sex life, less stress, less anxiety, less fear. Now, someone might say, well, 
Well, of course, if you've been married for a long time, those are some are going to be the outworkings. You're not married for a long time. If you're not willing to sacrifice and forgive and show grace and repair and build and trust, you're not going to be married for a long time. If this isn't the disposition of both parties to serve and sacrifice one to another. Talking with older couples in my life, it's curious. When they speak of each other, they talk about how much they love their spouse, the sacrifice towards one another, serving them, loving them. These are the very key ingredients for long marriages. Whether you are a Christ follower or not, I could sit with a 90-year-old couple who've been married for 60 years, and unbeknownst to them, they are actually practicing the very things that the Scriptures would speak to. Study after study after study finds that people who follow Jesus and for those who don't even know Jesus, but, but, but quietly are doing what he asks them to do, they live longer, they're financially secure, and I don't mean rich, they're just, they're not worried about that space. They have more and better sex than anyone else, they're healthier, they have less stress, less fear, less anxiety, and the list goes on. It's ironic that this very narrow perspective from Jesus' words around marriage, if we want to flourish, I would encourage us to really look to the very narrow way. Because whether it's in gossip or money or life or relationship or marriage, like narrow is the gate that leads to life. And yes, that's talking about the uniqueness of Jesus, but it's also talking about the way of life that Jesus speaks to. And by faith, we will come to that place of because you say so, I will. Our culture functions under this idea that when we marry, our spouse is to make my world better, that it's built off of how that person makes me feel. This is the advice of a lot of experts, and it's not all that great advice. God's design is very much the opposite. It's very much a space of when I am married, that for the rest of your life, you are going to sacrificially serve one another. And listen, I know I know that that can get very weird when there's one who is doing that and the other is not. I'm, I'm, I am completely aware of how marriages can come undone. I'm completely aware. I spent a lot of time sitting in living rooms over the years. I'm very aware of that. And I'm also very aware that, that if and when that stuff does happen, there's still life for those individuals because Christ is that great that He can put us back together again to live out our days. But it's curious, whenever you get yourself into a space of talking with a couple, you begin to see how this grudge and anger begins to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And if we don't apply the way of Christ early and often, we are setting ourselves up for some really challenging conversations later. For those of you who aren't married, and you hope to be married, please, 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 please make sure that you and your spouse are on the same page as to what this ought to look like. And if you're not on the same page, 
Don't get married. Don't get married. Like, if you're not going to enter in with this perspective of loving and serving each other in a sacrificial way, don't, don't get married. You will save yourself a lot of heartache and brokenness as you go down life. I remember on kind of our wedding day, 26, May 26 of 2001, kind of before the Lord, family, friends, two people, two very uniquely gifted, wired people, exchanged vows and made promises and began a process of becoming one. It didn't happen first night, first day of being married. It continues to happen, this mysterious, and the two become one flesh. I've watched many of you have been here for 19 years, and it's been a real joy to actually marry many of you, and to see two uniquely gifted people with their own ideas, with their own perspectives, with their own goals, all of a sudden get married, and it's been fun watching God bring two very different people together as one. It's a real joy to watch that unfold in church life. I want to invite the band back as we come into our final kind of moments here this morning. In a very practical way, as we kind of transition out of our conversation, I would invite you to begin asking, how can I actually sacrificially serve my spouse? In small, simple things. Doing dishes, helping with laundry, cleaning around the house, cooking, how you engage sexually with one another, financially. How do I practically participate in this sacrificial way of marriage that Jesus outlines? Those are the practical things. And those are often born out of the deeper heart level things. How do we practice saying sorry to our spouse? How do we forgive one another? How do we let go of the lists that we've built over the years? How do we demonstrate mercy? And mercy is this wonderful thing where it's like, like there is someone guilty. It's not like we both own stuff. Like it's 50-50. Like those are the, mo- those are the greatest ones. It's like you've got some stuff to say sorry for, I have some stuff, and we happily ever after. But it's like when someone is just guilty, does the other show mercy? That's the difference between like that grace and forgiveness and mercy. That I will just be merciful because I have been shown mercy from Christ himself towards me. Where you are right now, I would just invite you to quietly pray about your own life, if you're married, about spaces that there's some work to do around what you invite me into that I'm committing myself to this one to live in, in a sacrificial way. And it's a beautiful space when both partners lean into that same heart. Let's pray quietly and then we're going to sing one more song. And then we're going to get some strawberry shortcake. Our gracious and heavenly Father, marriage is one of the most spectacular gifts that you have given to your creation. 
It is your grace on our life that through our spouse, you reveal to us things of our life that would never be really revealed. It's a space that you have designed for us to flourish in when we live it your way. And as we are confronted with your instruction about how we are to interact with each other, there will be moments where it's like Peter, like, because you say so, I will do this. It makes no sense. It is frustrating. It's difficult. But because you are asking me to do this, I will do this. And by faith, we will trust and we will put into practice all that you're inviting us to, knowing that you're at work in our lives and the lives of our partner to reflect your goodness and glory on our lives. That we would be purged of things like selfishness. That we would be purged of motivations that can take sometimes weeks or years to come to the surface. That we would be a partner in marriage, that we would willingly be laying down our life for the other, showing grace, showing mercy, building each other up, which is born out of our understanding of who you are. Born out of a God who, while we were still sinners, you came to this earth to die for us, to seek and save those who are broken. May you shape our marriages in beautiful and profound ways. In your name we pray. Amen.